Always be patching. Software is always changing. There are always vulnerabilities and threats that come up that are found. You need to be aware of that and constantly be adaptive and react to it. Hi, thanks for visiting open.intel. I'm Catherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist here at Intel. And I recently chatted with well-known security expert, Chris Robinson, also known as Krogh, about open source security and what he does at Intel. Enjoy, and visit us again for more important open source conversations. So hi, how's it going, Probe? It's going great. How are Thank you? Thank you so much. I'm I am doing really well today. Thank you so much for for joining me and answering these questions. And thank you Very for welcome. all the people who are listening to this in audio format, yeah. because it it brings a little more personality to it, I think. And and we're gonna have some fun. I agree. So for in case you don't know who Crobe is, Crobe is the director of security communications at Intel. I am Catherine Druckman. I am an open source evangelist, and. My story is much less interesting, so we're going to focus on Crobe's. <laughs> so here at Intel, Crobe that. does crisis communications training and security incident communications, and a video series you should check out called Chips and Salsa. Totally he's also, check it out. Yeah. He is also heavily involved in open source security communities and is a technical advisor for the Open Source Security Foundation. And you should also read his full entire bio on the text version of this because it's quite long and impressive. And and uh, <laughs> I don't think we really have time to talk about all the places you've spoken. I think you're saying I'm old. No, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I, I, I'm saying you're busy. Well, that that is a fact. <laughs> yeah. So with all of this in mind, the first thing I'd like to know what made you go into the cybersecurity field originally? And even maybe more interestingly, what made you stay? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am old because back in the day, it used to be called information security and that was it, or just security. Uh, Cyber is a new uh, thing in my trade, but uh, I started off like a lot of people in my generation where I did... uh, network and server support. And, uh, you know, we had to configure firewalls and access control lists and all this stuff. And that uh, naturally kind of flowed into uh, the the kind of security discipline. And I spent uh, a long time at a a super regional bank and heavily regulated industries. So I got to deal with a lot of auditors and people from the government kind of explaining how the bank did things. And uh, that's where I really kind of caught the formal bug, trained and got my CISSP, uh, Certified Information Security Professional Certification. And, uh, you know, from there, I haven't looked back. I've stuck with InfoSec and uh, AppSec and DevSecOps and all all the secs uh, for a while. So one of the one of the things that keeps you busy is education, and I know you're mm-hmm. passionate about education. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about your approach to educating the general public, maybe as it differs from educating security professionals? Mm-hmm. And in particular, how do you emphasize the importance of good security practices without scaring people? Well, uh, first and foremost, you want to always avoid FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That is a tactic that a lot of either inexperienced 
or bad uh, security folks will lean into where you try to scare the person you're working with into uh, your perspective or what you want them to do. Uh, my philosophy of education, actually, when I started out my college career, I was going to become a college professor. So I have been in and around education my whole life. Um, I, uh, my upbringings, I did a lot of customer service related things. So again, I'm always really in, been involved with trying to work with stakeholders or customers and uh, helping talk in terms that they understand and try to avoid you know things like FUD, avoiding jargon, big, scary things. And you try to explain things in plain terms that they can understand. And um, this also works really well within the cybersecurity field, because when you're trying to convince an executive or a business stakeholder to do something, generally when you speak plainly, you, you talk about in terms that they understand. And if you're a business person, you understand dollars and cents, uh, typically. And if you talk in those terms, you're going to be much more successful in conveying your message and trying to persuade that person to uh, your, your point of view, whatever you're trying to get them to engage in. So that's just, that's been my tactic, whether I'm doing it professionally as an educator, whether I'm doing it as part of my work with the OpenSSF, um, the education uh, SIG, or just, uh, you know, as I do training here within Intel, it's just you, you try to speak plainly and honestly and present the facts and uh, you don't get into trying to be a big, scary monster. That's great. I think that's great advice. Along those lines, spe speaking of FUD, Everyone's talking about software supply chain security, especially after the Log4j incident. I know, I, I'm sure you're shocked by that. Um, Log4j and all everything around that was a bit of a mess. Uh, is there anything about that conversation that you think a lot of people miss or, or get wrong? Or at first, maybe you could just kind of mm -hmm. give us your take on it. it. It's definitely gotten a lot of... Uh airtime within the media and within kind of uh, government regulators' minds. And it, it dates actually farther back than Log4j. You, you go back, there's been a string of um, open source kind of account hijacks or poisoning the well attacks, or you think about things like um, the SolarWinds breach, where uh, th their supply chain was compromised, and that allowed that very skilled set of threat actors to conduct their operation. And a supply chain should intrinsically be in any, every consumer's uh, forethought. You know, where, what am I buying? Where did this come from? What components went into this? Who touched it? You know, how was it changed along the way? And, as, and that comes especially sensitive within software because um, open source software, some figures have it as high as um, over 90% of all commercial software and publicly available platforms run on an open source based set of software. So um, that becomes more complicated because you're starting to run your business on software that you didn't make yourself. But back in days of yore, everyone wrote their own software or bought something off the shelf. And it's just become more uh, commonplace now where you're uh, you know, outsourcing or you're borrowing or open sourcing other components that you don't create your whole solution yourself. And that you think about it in the terms of a supply chain, if somebody makes some software and they had a certain, they designed it for a certain purpose. And then other people down the way before it gets to you might've made alterations that change that behavior, the characteristics of that software. 
And what Log4J um, showcased to me, because I am actually part of that secure open source upstream security community, what that expressed to me, that problem, um, there was a vulnerability and it got fixed actually very quickly. It got fixed with uh, under 12 hours of public disclosure by the uh, Apache security team. So the uh, open source reacted very quickly. But what happened downstream is that that information was either um, ineffectively shared. Uh, people didn't know that they had this embedded component inside software they were using supplied to them by vendors. So Log4J to me is a supply chain problem that people don't understand the third-party components that are used in their solutions. They don't understand what's done to those components as they're delivered to them. And they don't really have a, a good insight into what's operating on their networks and you know running their critical systems. Thank you. It, it goes back to the basics of inventory. You need to have an inventory of what's in, in, in your shop, so to speak. Yeah. And this is something that a lot of people are, are, are still working out and that's an important conversation to be involved in. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some security concerns that you think are not getting enough attention? Well, we're paying attention to certain things and a lot of people are focusing their energy on uh, supply chain issues, uh, bills of materials, that sort of thing. What, what, what isn't getting enough attention? At the end of the day, um, many organizations aren't conducting the basics of an information security program well. They don't understand where their critical data is, who can access it, kind of what acceptable patterns of traffic and access are into and out of their networks. And things we were talking right before the show about there was a, an announcement today that there was a, a, a Python phishing attack. And almost always the, the main threat an end consumer is going to see is something around ransomware and phishing. That's the cheapest way a threat actor can get an attack in your mailbox and get it to you. And what they do is they harvest your credentials. And if you implement very remedial tools like multi-factor authentication, that virtually eliminates many of these attacks because the attacker doesn't have the multiple factors to be able to steal your identity, so to speak. So if uh, consumers were implementing basic security controls, access controls, logging, uh, traffic monitoring, and then things like multi-factor or uh, you know temporal or geographic controls. It's going to eliminate a lot of these most common threats, and you know then maybe someday we can worry about the esoteric academic James Bond problems. <laughs> I love it, James Bond problems. Yeah, Tom so, okay. Cruise sliding in on the wire. Yeah, it doesn't happen to everybody. Everybody no. has email though. And you're probably going to get spam and phishing. Yep, that's a, that is that is a, a certainty in life. I think at this point. So so along the, the the lines actually that you were just talking about. So the Linux Foundation and Sneak published the results of their 2022 uh, State of Open Source Security report, and there mm -hmm. were two results from that that really stuck with me. And one of them is 41% of organizations don't have enough confidence in their open source software security or in the security of their software development process. So that's kind of something that you just mentioned a little bit, mm -hmm. or you hinted at. And then the second one, data shows that the time it takes to fix vulnerabilities in open source projects has steadily increased from 49 days in 2018 to 110 days in 2021. And I'm wondering about the first, what, what is it mm -hmm. the root of that lack of confidence? And then why do vulnerabilities take longer to fix, especially in, in open source projects? 
Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, unfortunately, with the pressure of an always connected world, where we've gone from where you've had a, a bastion server, an enclave that didn't have access to the internet. Now everything is connected to everything and the internet can touch everything. Um, along that transition, as people have migrated to things like uh, cloud, uh, they have not implemented the effective security controls along the way to help protect themselves. And the same thing goes towards um, organizations and vendors when they have uh, software developers um, they're you know, pushed, pushed, pushed to hit a deadline. You must hit time and budget and you can't go over. And normally security, unfortunately, requires a little bit of additional time, a little bit of thinking. If you plan up front, you can ease that, you know, shift things left. You can ease that transition into a more secure state. But most people don't want to spend the time. They're just shifting and lifting something somewhere and they don't want to invest a lot of effort. And, you know, the reason people don't have confidence is because, whether it's a product manager or a development manager, they have not been um, either. They don't understand how open source works. It, it's very complex. There's a lot of different models and how open source software is developed, developed and communicated. Um, so they either didn't know, uh, they don't care because they're just writing something and then shoving it over to a support organization. It's not their problem anymore. So they've kind of shifted, they've moved the technical debt somewhere else. And that um, really businesses have incurred a significant amount of risk because they've not done effective due diligence on their practices or the software that they're ingesting. You know, the things like SBOM, which you know, we talked about just briefly earlier, that software bill of materials will tell somebody what's inside of the software they're trying to run. And, you know, without those tools, uh, you know, you, you lose that confidence and you get scared by big, scary headlines because the world, you know, the register says the internet's broken and um, that's not necessarily the case. If you have effective software management practices, effective SDLC, um, good um, security controls around scanning and management of code and vulnerability management, open source is, I, I would propose, more secure than a closed source solution because you can actually observe it with your own eyes. If you are unsure and you're a little afraid, you can open up that code and look at yourself. You can apply your own tools to it and verify for yourself the, the authenticity and security of it. I, I love that you said that because I, I do feel like I hear increasingly, um, you know, the open source problem. And I'm, I'm really glad that you, that you said it, that. It wasn't a problem when a business or a product manager decided to open source the software and shove into their own deliverable wasn't a problem then <laughs> it is a problem that they didn't have an effective plan for the long-term maintenance and upkeep of that software. So uh, shifting focus a little bit, how have global events changed Ooh. the security landscape in the last few years? We've got a lot going on in the world. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, COVID completely disrupted digital and physical worlds. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a war in Ukraine, uh, rising tensions in Taiwan. How do these affect the way you and others approach security? Mm-hmm. What is your current state of mind right now? Afraid, um, concerned. The, what the recent global events, from, from my perspective, because um, I've had to deal with some of these um, adversaries in previous lives, and it used to be uh, based off of kind of what your business was or where your position was in the world, you could expect certain types of threat actors to try to come in and steal your stuff. 
Um, if you were a home user, you know, you're going to have the, the, the script kitty kind of uh, fishing and farming type attacker where they're purely in it for money. You know, their motivation was money. I want to get uh, data to extort you with, or I want to steal uh, financial information. So that those, you know, that's kind of a known thing. And, and we had techniques and tools and procedures to handle that. And when you got to the level of like nation states, um, we, it was fairly well understood, you know, kind of how those actors were acting. You know, they were there to uh, further the political agenda of the, the nation they're representing. And, you know, some of them were there purely to steal um, intellectual property so that they could further and improve their own economy. Others of them were looking to uh, like a reputation attack where they wanted to make people look bad, kind of expose their face, make you look silly or like you're a bad person. So again, pre-COVID, the world was, it wasn't easy, but it was a little more predictable because you understood how the different types of threat actors operate and kind of what they wanted. But now with COVID and um, it's, tools for hacking are much more easily available. So it's anybody can become a, an attacker, anyone that has a political agenda or any kind of agenda, they can you know, very easily enact that through the anonymity of the internet and the ease of access there. So what is troubling is today with like the, the geopolitical events, we're seeing a lot more um, of uh, very skilled threat actors kind of moving outside of their areas of common interest. So they've moved on from government attacking government to governments attacking um, critical infrastructure to try to shut down a, a place's capabilities, shutting off the power grid, shutting off water treatment plants. And it's just this kind of evolution and shift where we, we you always had a little bit of that, but it wasn't as the frequency of that was much smaller. And just today with all the, the turmoil we're seeing around the world, it's very cheap and effective and you don't have to have as many people. You don't have a, you have a giant army and billions of dollars behind you. You can be just as effective uh, fighting and moving your agenda forward with uh, you know some shell scripts, some Python here and there. And that's that's what concerns me is we're seeing more of these nation state actors kind of it's spilling over more into um, a, a consumer or a critical infrastructure space than it was before, where it used to be kind of a, a cold war so to speak, where people might snoop around. But you know, today we don't know. Maybe they might uh, decide to flip a couple switches here and there, and that's just kind of a risk we're trying to navigate through with our politicians. So, well, uh, along those lines, uh, you know, interviews with security experts are always filled with doom and gloom, or frequently, anyway. Mm -hmm. But I, I was hoping we could kind of flip that around. Yeah. Um, what are, What are you most excited and hopeful for right now in your work? To be honest, and I know I'm very heavily biased in this, but uh, to be honest, I'm super excited about the work we're doing with um, the Open Source uh, Security Foundation, the OpenSSF. It's part of the Linux Foundation. And why I'm excited is, you know, there's, there's always been a group of people, you know, the open source kind of out there doing their thing, uh, sometimes a little fringe, sometimes not. But what, with the OpenSSF, we have, we're bringing together traditional maintainers and projects and project contributors in the same room as uh, major industry players like Intel or Microsoft or GitHub. And we're getting together and we're collaborating on very real world problems. Um, you know, in regard, you know, kind of along the, the thread you've been weaving here around supply chain and kind of government concerns. 
in the United States, uh, President Biden released an executive order last year and kind of outlined the, the administration's goals around helping improve the cybers. Well, the OpenSSF and you know, all of our members, we got together, uh, looked at that, and we put together a 10-point plan saying if we do these, we fund these 10 initiatives, we will be able to increase the security profile of all open source because you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. We'll be able to focus on specific things, but also help improve the whole ecosystem for everybody. So I'm super excited and super happy to be part of that because we actually are making things that have a you know, global impact and are making things better. Just, it takes time and takes people to help out. Patches are always welcome. <laughs> That's great, yeah. Um, so on a more personal note though, when are you happiest in your work? What am I happiest in my work? I am happiest in my work when I'm able to make that connection for people. When you have someone that doesn't understand a concept and maybe I help educate them and you can kind of see the light bulb go on in their head. Or if somebody is you know, working on a hard problem, I'm able to connect them with the right person or the right tool to help them solve that. So I, I just like helping people. And that's, uh, that's what makes me happy. That's why I spend so much time with education and all these kind of philanthropic things. That's a wonderful answer. And Thanks. then finally, do you have a one sentence piece of security advice for technologists? And do you have a different one for everyone else or is it the same? Um, one sentence, boy, that is tough. Um, I would have a couple one sentences. Okay. Uh, firstly, from a, like a, consumer enterprise perspective, always be patching. Mm. Uh, software is always changing. There are always vulnerabilities and threats that come up that are found. You need to be aware of that and constantly be adaptive and react to it. And from a, a consumer perspective, uh, you know, like an end user perspective, I, I would advocate um, you know, a, a good dose of skepticism don't always trust what you read on the internet. Don't always trust what's in your inbox. Give it a, give it a sniff test. Give it a little extra look. Maybe do a little additional research before you click a link. So just always, you know, a good dose of healthy skepticism will always help you and help you be, uh, you know, avoid getting uh, owned. I love it. I think that's, that's really great advice. Um, Thank you. And uh, I borrowed you. it from somebody else. I'm sure. I don't know. Uh, no, no, I no, were, no. I stand on the shoulders of giants. We yeah. all do. We all do. That's why, that's why we're here. So thank you so much for this. This was honestly a lot of really great advice, a lot of great information, and it was a lot of fun too. Awesome. And I hope the people that listen and read will uh, feel <laughs> the same way. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This was fun. <laughs>